This week on the Emmaus Institute for Disciple Making podcast, Rick Evans continues his series titled Storyline by wrapping up the narrative of the Israelites, then covering the 400 years between Old and New Testaments, and then covering the narrative of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. All right, we'll go ahead and get started here. Um, hope everyone had a good week off and a good fourth in this nice cool weather. And so, um, let's, we'll do a recap here, just kind of get our minds back into it. And uh, for those who may have not been for, here for um, one or two of the weeks, um, we're talking about, remember, the main overall themes are the loving, holy creator king who restores and renews or redeems or all those rewords. Um, act one and act two, we did the first week, and that's creation and the fall. One thing, when I hand out the book, he's going to spend a lot more time on, especially creation. I mean, I think he, if I remember correctly, it goes like page 70, he's still on creation. A big chunk of the book is on creation. So, um, and I'll talk more about the book when I hand those out. Um, and then we did on the second week, Israel part one, um, and that was the part where we got uh, the Exodus and Moses up to the time of the judges and Ruth. And then um, Act 2 of Israel, or Part 2 of Israel, was the kings. Um, the establishment of Saul and David and Solomon. And um, we talked a lot about the prophets and the importance of the prophets. But Israel was broken. It was beaten by the end of, we got done of uh, the third class. Um, people were coming back. Um, they were letting people come back. However, a lot of people didn't come back. We'll talk about that in just a second. But the temple was being restored, but it wasn't the temple of old. Um, it even talks about in, in Scripture, there was weeping when the, the, the second temple was finished. And partly, some of it was because people were excited that a you know, second temple was built. But also, people were crying because they knew it was not the splendor of the first temple. It was just, it was a hard, it's still a hard time for them. And um, so you have this prophecy. Uh, the prophet's talking about what's, there's still hope though. And we talked a lot about it. There's constantly hope. Even in the most, some of the grim prophets were still putting out their butt. The time is going to come when God does this thing to fix all this. Um, and so, which leads us to this, this part, the time between the Testaments. Um, as the Old Testament ends um, and the New Testament begins, you have about, about this 400-year period, which is very important. Matter of fact, this is one of the best parts of the book, to be honest with you. I've seen this written about in various places. This author does, these authors, there's actually two authors, do a great job describing this. And we, we need to talk about it because it really gives you the idea of where we left off and the world that Jesus is, comes into and what's going on and how we think about Pharisees and Sadducees and all that's going on there. So let's talk about that. And this is really part C of Israel, of the third act. So this is, we didn't have time really to get to it on the, um, the third class. So this is really part C, the last part of the third act of Israel. So um, the, let me get her a sheet here. The Persians were allowing um, the Jews to return, if you remember correctly, and they were coming back. Sure, no problem. Um, it's interesting to see, though, that most Jews did not come back. They stayed dispersed. Um, it, was a, it was a minority percentage that came back. Um, and you can imagine what they were coming back to is a, a broken land. Um, and as Bartholomew says, the Persians allowed the Jews to return, but only a minority did so. By the first century AD, Jewish communities are spread throughout that part of the world. And he goes on to say, those Jews believed that Israel as a whole remained in exile, which is interesting, and wanted to maintain their distinctiveness. This, that's going to be very important, both it, in its covenant identity and its observances reinforced it. Keep this in mind, not only when we go to what Jesus is going to talk about, when we get to the New Testament, I mean the, um, the Acts and Paul's letters and the others, 
you can start to see why this becomes an issue for Paul. And he's talking, to, for example, to Romans. Hey, you Jews and you Gentiles in this church, in, in this church in Rome, or he does this throughout. Or uh, we'll talk about the, the first count church council in Acts 15, uh, the Council of Jerusalem, where they talked about what Jewish acts are they supposed to maintain with the Gentiles. They're going out and talking to the Gentiles, but are how much of the Jewish stuff are we... Well, you can see why this is a tension now. Because the Jews are out there saying, hey, we're in the world, but we got to be distinct because we're out in the world. We're in exile. So um, the synagogues then were created for Sabbath, worship, prayer, and study. Remember, this is, there's an exile. They're spread throughout. Not all are in Israel. So they're setting up these synagogues. But they hoped for the temple to return to its future glory. They knew it, it wasn't there. So they were left with five fundamental beliefs, and this is very important. The product of Israel's 2,000-year journey with God from the time of Abraham shaped Jewish life during this period. The first is monotheism. There's one God, creator, ruler. We see that in the Shema. If you remember, we talked about the Shema. Um, how important that, that creed was. It goes to that. Two, the election of Israel. God chose Israel to be its light, to be its messenger, to be its, what the signal it's sending to the whole world. He wanted Israel to be that. They were elect, so they saw themselves as having that responsibility. The law and the Torah. They put everything into that, everything in the law and Torah. Four, that the land was taken away because God dealt with Israel. Remember we talked about the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. Because of disobedience, the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom and then later the Babylonians took the southern kingdom. Um, and they knew it was because of this disobedience. The prophets had told them, look out, it's coming. You're going to keep going this route, you know, worshiping other idols and not loving the Lord your God. You know, there's going to be trouble. Trouble came, and they feel like the land was taken away. Keep in mind also, as we go back to Abraham, one of, part of the Abrahamic covenant was the land. You'll have this land. So now the land has been taken away because of their disobedience. And, that, and the fifth part would be that God would complete his redeeming act in the future. Which, of course, the prophets emphasized a lot. So in then 331 BC, Alexander the Great dominated the area and brought Greek culture's influence. In 323 he died and a power struggle ensued. And it brought the reign of these other individuals who brought this Greek influence into this, this part of the world and into Jewish culture, which offended many Jews. Some liked it, some were greatly offended. We'll talk about that in a minute. You then had the Maccabean revolt that took place. It was like, we're not going to put up with this. We're fighting back. And many thought this was almost a Messiah-like situation. We're pushing back. And then, of course, it wasn't. But it was that kind of, hey, let's use force to fight back. Let's, this is our land. We're losing our distinctiveness. We've gone apart from God. Let's get it back and let's do what we need to. And it would fail. In 63 BC, Rome takes over. And eventually, Herod the Great is installed as the puppet king. Um, it goes back to the setup, and I won't go all into it. The book goes into it well. Essentially, they're just there for, because they're Hellenized Jews. They're Greek-like Jews who Rome put in there to, to run the show. Rome oppressed the Jews, and resentment of Gentiles therefore increased. So the Jews now are getting mad. Rome's oppressing them, and the Jews are getting mad at, at Gentiles. Again, we'll see why that, you go into the New Testament, you start reading the books of the New Testament, you see why this, there's this tension. They looked for a day when God would redeem Israel from its oppressors, then they would be free to worship. The people of Israel saw two periods, the stain of sin and the age to come, in which God would deal with Israel's sin and then use them to bless the whole world, set things right with the power of the Spirit. They're seeing this as one big event, the day of the Lord. It's all going to happen at once. That's how they saw it. So they had this 
period where they were at fault, but God's going to correct everything in this, this time. Four religious parties developed within Israel from this, these beliefs. The Pharisees, they are the conservatives who demanded Jews remain distinct. The Essenes, they wanted to just withdraw from the Gentiles. Um, if you know of, um, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank. The documents, someone help me. They were found in the Qumran. You know what I'm talking about? Dead Sea Scrolls, thank you. Dead Sea Scrolls. They believed that the Essenes were the ones who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's that community. They got away um, in this community called Qumran, um, put out these documents. That's the leading belief. And they had their own messianic beliefs and that kind of thing. But nonetheless, the Sadducees, they're the priests who wanted to maintain the status quo. So think about this. When, we, you know, when you read in the Gospels, for example, the Sadducees and the Pharisees on, at some points were opposite sides. You see why. The, the Pharisees are saying, hey, we need to be distinct. And the Sadducees say, hey, let's just get along. Let's get along with the rulers. So you have that tension. They also had a few different beliefs, which Gospels talk about. Um, and, of course, they would team up later. But you see why that, there's that difference. And then you have the Zealots who wanted a military option to overthrow the oppressors. So those are the four groups. That's that tension that Jesus, the world he's walking into in Israel when, he, when, when he's born. These, these, let's see, you have Rome, and then you have this puppet king, and then you have these four segments of Jews who are having these different views of how to handle this. So um, we go to the Gospels. The Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which many of you know. They are four portraits of Jesus using a specific genre of that time. That's very important. They are not historical biographies as we think of them today. Much of scripture is about genre. It's about what type of literature of this. And sometimes it's not always as apparent to us. And some things, things in, like in the Old Testament, were allowed as a style of literature that we think we may not see. Oh, I didn't know, you know they would use that kind of flair and that example. Of course, we see the Psalms are great. We know that's poetry. Uh, we know that the Proverbs are wisdom literature. Um, there's talking, I mentioned this in the first class, you know, the first 11 chapters of Genesis some see as a different genre than the rest of Genesis. It's a different style of writing using different ways. We see apocalyptic literature in Daniel and Ezekiel and of course Revelation. So that's a different genre. Um, but also there's some nuances in there. Um, I think I may have mentioned much, some scholars these days are thinking much of the Old Testament is, is wisdom literature more than we even thought. Well, that's interesting doesn't make it any less expired. It just makes us understand it better, maybe. Um, it's, it's, it's really cool. But the Gospels are a certain kind of biography of that period. Um, so we got to keep that in mind. They're not writing down like a video camera. They have a certain message, and they're looking at it post-resurrection. Post-resurrection. Okay? So, because they're writing in different contexts, different audiences, the sequences vary a little bit. Um, the best example is Jesus going into the temple and doing, the, doing his MMA thing on the temple. In John, that happens early in the Gospel of John. In the other three Gospels, that happens later. So scholars are saying, well, John just put it early for his reason. Others say, no, it actually ha John had a ride happen early. The others put it later for their own reasons. It doesn't matter. You know, it talks about it happened. And often, and we'll talk about this a little bit, when you read the Gospels, many times they're not talking about in sequence. We assume it's in sequence, but if you go to 
the next story doesn't say right after. Many times it doesn't say right after. It just says, one time Jesus was, or Jesus was in this area, and it didn't say it was part of that. So we'll talk more about that as we go through the Gospels. So they're, they're shaping it. So let's talk about them real quick, because it's important for understanding the story here. Matthew, the tax collector, okay? He's an apostle, written to Jewish believers. He's, he's apparently he was writing to Jewish believers to show that Jesus is the predicted Messiah, okay, that the Old Testament was calling for. So, you know, we saw all these, you know, the one is going to come, the one is going to come, the future line of David, the, the, the you know, all this is going to be set right. Um, and it's arranged around five great discourses. That's how Matthew shaped his. Around five big, the most famous being the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of those great discourses. Matt, Matthew shaped, I call him Matt, I'm going to call him Matt. Matt shaped his that way. Okay? Mark, we also see him as, referred to as John Mark and Acts. He's mentored, mentored by Barnabas and Paul, we learn that in Acts, and by Peter. The churches, we, we know that he was Peter's right-hand man, and probably got a lot of this information from Peter. It's written to Gentile readers, possibly in Rome. That's not for sure. We don't know. Um, and it's quickly paced, and it's perhaps the first gospel written. If you read Matthew, put on your seatbelt. He is going. Hold on. And it, you see immediately a lot, and immediately, and immediately, and then this, and then this, and immediately. Okay. No, he, he almost doesn't have a lot of discourses, a lot of long passages. He is... He is flying, and what Mark is flying to is Passion Week. He saves a bunch of his gospel for the Passion Week. That is what he's driving to. Jesus going in the temple as king, the crucifixion, that, that's where Mark's headed. Um, Luke, the doctor, mentored by Paul, encouraging the faith, showing the universality of the message. He brings in a lot of Gentiles and people who aren't Jews in his stories. Um, he brings a lot about women into his stories. He talks about the importance of women in a lot of his stories. Um, journeying from the outskirts, and this is going to be important. He's journeying from the outskirts to Israel, to Jerusalem. So he's going to start, if this is, go back to my great drawing. Those that weren't here, missed, you missed it. I'll sign the autograph later. If this is Jerusalem over here, Luke is kind of doing this thing. I'm over, I'm not saying he does a perfect circle or anything, but he's going from the outskirts and he's going in. That's kind of how he has shaped his story. Um, it starts, of course, here, and then they will go to Egypt. We'll talk about that. And then they come back and they end up in Nazareth, and they're just going to start this, this, this wine. This, again, he too, like Mark, is driving to Passion Week drive into the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. If you, those that don't know what I'm say, Passion Week. Passion is the, from um, Palm Sunday where Jesus arrives, to throw the palms, he's on the donkey, coming in as the triumphant king. And then you have um, the Passover supper where there's this apostles in the upper room. And then, um, of course, the crucifixion, all, that's all Passion Week. Um, you see that on Easter week, you see many people, Roman Catholics, will go out and do the various stages of, of Passion Week. They'll, they'll go there. So that's what I'm talking about there. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels. That's because they are very similar. They have a lot of overlap. Um, I believe something like Mark, 90-something percent of Mark is found in Luke and Matthew. I'm just throwing these numbers out. You can look them up. Fifty-something percent of Matthew is found in Luke. There's an overlap. And there's scholarly discussion. Which came first? I mentioned Mark. That's the general thought is that Mark came first. Luke and Matthew saw how kind of Mark laid it out, so that's a good way to lay it out. But I have this reader I'm trying to, and these readers I'm trying to address, so I'm going to shape it around my way and include my stuff. So some think Matthew came first. Um, so, but it's early. It's early. Mark, if it was Mark, it was early. Almost as early, but not quite, as perhaps Paul's epistles. It goes back to our chronology issue that we've talked about the last month. 
again, Paul may be, probably is writing some of his letters before the Gospels are written. But the, these guys, these four, two of them are apostles, two of them are close to apostles, are there with their stories. And part of the thinking is they're dying. They're going to die out eventually. And someone needs to get this written down if it's not already written down. So the stories are being compiled. Great story, great book on this is um, Richard Bauckham's book, um, Jesus and Eyewitnesses. Great book about this kind of thing if you want to study that. Okay, and then you have, um, so Luke the doctor, mentored by Paul, um, he's journeying the outskirts of Israel towards Jerusalem. Part one of his message is the gospel. Part two is Acts. It's really... We separate Acts in the Bible but from Luke by putting John in the middle. But actually, Luke-Acts kind of goes together. They're two parts of the same one long story. Then you have John, um, the apostle, close to Jesus. Very evangelistic message. Um, his is built around seven signs and seven I am's. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. Who does, does Abraham say, I am? I mean, those seven I am's. The signs of the miracles. I'm turning the water into wine is the first of those signs. He's, so he's around the seven. He shaped his story that way. Not much of John. There's not a lot of overlap with the synoptic gospels. Um, the feeding of 5,000 is an overlap. Um, of course, the crucifixion, um, parts of it. Um, he includes more. Um, that kind of thing. So those are the, the, the four Gospels. The Gospel means good news, and we'll see why in just a minute. Um, the story, it's about the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus Christ, that renewal and restor restoration is revealed in its final shape as the kingdom of God, says Bartholomew. Jesus' entire mission turns on the central theme of the kingdom of God. He proclaims this in his first words in Mark's gospel, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. But then Jesus goes further. Not only has God's kingdom come at last to Israel, it has come in himself. He is the dawning of it um, in so many ways. So there is widespread expectation that God is about to act with love and wrath and power to renew creation and restore his reign over the whole world. But Jesus does not go about it in the expected way. He does it out of love, forgiveness, suffering, etc. Which, you know, blows their mind. They did, you know, that's why they're asking, you know, John the Baptist is asking, are you the one? We're expecting a little different. Are you the one? Of course, Judas... We'll find out, you know, he's frustrated. He, that's not what he expected. He, he preferred the more the Maccabees, how they did it. And let's get a military thing going, you know, or some other thing, because this, this isn't working. So we got a part one, the life of Jesus. In, so I'm going to do this somewhat chronologically as best we can, because the books are shaped differently. It's not going to flow just, just, perfectly. Does that make sense? It's a little hard to do everything in exact sequence when the four books. Now, in the early church, after the gospel, with the books of the Bible are being put together and they're seeing that the church is saying, okay, this has the authority of scripture, this has that, it should be considered scripture. Someone tried to make these all harmonize, what they call a harmonization of the gospels. You can even buy a book today. I think I have one at home. The problem is the, he put it out there, and the early church said, you know, I, I don't think that's the way we're supposed to go with this. We're supposed to have four Gospels. We're not, they're not supposed to necessarily match up perfectly. There's a purpose for each one. And so it's, it's okay to have that variety. So we start with John 1.1 because he starts at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. Um, clearly, John is trying to refer people back, get their thoughts of, what does that remind anybody of? In the beginning, Genesis, yeah, Genesis 1. He's trying to get people, hey, this is like a Genesis story. If you ever read 1 John, the first part of 1 John, the letter, same thing. He's going to start the same, same idea. Um, 
Then we had the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist and the foretelling of the birth of Jesus and Mary's song. Um, Mary's song is a beautiful piece of scripture, too often overlooked. Uh, if you've never read Mary's song, highly recommend it. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, and those who don't know, John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins. We've never, okay. Um, then we have in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, the genealogy of the royal line and where Joseph sees the angel. Okay? The genealogy, you can see now why, you know, we get to the genealogies, you think, oh, this is kind of snooze a ruse. Now you can see why, since we went back, why it's so important. He's connecting him to David. He's saying, hey, this is really important who this guy is. Matthew um, 1 says, um, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Of course, that was from Isaiah. And that's the big part of this one, of Act 4, the king, the king with us, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. And the king has arrived. He is present with us. We've talked about that relationship part of God. Here he is in the flesh. Um, and do you ever spend time just contemplating that idea of God who created everything, who is spirit, who has done all these incredible deeds and knows all, and to become human for us, for our benefit, um, is, is amazing. It's amazing. Um, you have the three wise men. Um, who, that's a story of who they actually were, but we'll call them the three wise men. Um, and of course, it doesn't mean they brought three gifts. Um, we don't know how many gifts they brought. Um, and then you have Joseph and Mary and Jesus escaped to Egypt and then returned to Nazareth. This is when Herod goes on a rampage. He gets an idea from the wise men that, you know, this new threat to his authority may be arriving. He goes on a rampage. They head to Egypt, which actually fulfills a, um, a scripture passage in the Old Testament about, I will call my son out of Egypt. And so Jesus, here's a great example. of Jesus is now, we talked about this with, um, what's Hosea, we talked about it with Ruth, and I think it was Hosea. They're going to live out, he's going to live out the story of Israel like they did, like some of the prophets did. Uh, we talk about Ruth living out that idea and Naomi living out and um, the prophets living out, actually living out the story and suffering and going through what God and Israel were going through in their personal lives. Well, Jesus is going to do this. So he's going to now go and come out of Egypt. Um, then we have the case in Luke 2 where um, this is the only, Luke's the only one who mentions this. The young Jesus speaking in the temple. That's where his parents, that's a weird story. Don't quite get how the parents lost him for that period of time. Don't think that would happen today. Um, it's, it, but, you know, the context of the time, probably he was probably hanging out with some family members. Maybe you some gone on vacation this summer and sent the kids off with the cousins and you didn't know where they were either. You know, maybe they went, visited your family in Ohio and they're, um, you know, you don't know what they're doing. And he was in a long traveling caravan and say, go hang out with your cousins and went back and said, hey, where's Jesus? We don't know. We, we lied. We thought he was with you. So, um, then you have John the Baptist in his ministry. He's calling for repentance and proclaiming the Lamb of God. Again, back to the Old, um, Old Testament and, and um, all the importance there. Jesus is baptized. Um, that's Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, John 1. All of them mentioned this one. Um, very important moment. Um, you see the Trinity spoken of there. Um, God speaks to the Son. The Holy Spirit appears like a dove, appears down. They kind of, not that the Holy Spirit's a dove. Just sometimes it gets portrayed that way, like it's a bird. It's, I even heard one scholar likes to say, too often we consider the Trinity the Father, the Son, and the bird. You know, that's not, it's not the truth. So, um, so John's message is that the king's subjects must repent turn from sin to God, seeking the promised salvation, and be baptized in water. Um, there's a purpose for that, and 
we won't go into the whole theology of baptism, so we'll leave that alone. Because I could, I could spend a whole summer series on that issue. Um, <clears throat> then Jesus, um, okay, John's message is that the king's subjects must repent, turn from sin, and seek in the promised salvation, which is only in Jesus. They, 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 this is coming up here. He's saying, hey, this, this is the time. This is the guy. Jesus then spends 40 days in the wilderness, proclaims the good news, and then Jesus calls his disciples. The 40 days in the wilderness is another one that gets overlooked. There's a great book by Philip Yancey. I can't, is it the Jesus I never knew? It's, I can't remember one of his books, but he talks about just this period. And him and others consider this other than the Passion Week and what Jesus does. This is perhaps the most important part of the Gospels, this period in the desert. And again, as a related note, he's living out Israel again. They spent 40 years, he's spending out 40 days by himself, but he does it differently, he goes about it differently. And remember how they're grumbling about food. Now think about Satan tempting Jesus with food. You know, turn it, turn the stone, you know, turn the stones, get some food. You know, that kind of thing. Jesus now is being so obedient, he's going to carry out what Israel couldn't. Um, and Jesus proclaims the good news in Mark. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God, is, kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Um, God, as Bartholomew says, God is now acting in love and power through Jesus and by his spirit to restore all creation, all human life, to live again under the benevolent reign of God himself. Remember, judges, they didn't want to go that route. They didn't want God to be reigning, reigning over them. Um, this message demands a response. Repent and believe. Follow me. Said another way, turn away from your false views of the world and embrace the reality and presence of the coming kingdom of God in me, in Jesus. You may not see the power of God's healing kingdom breaking into history, but you can believe that in me, God's liberating power is now present. Give up your old way of life. Trust me for a new one. That's a, that's a great way of looking at the God, good news right there. That, that is the good news. He's proclaiming there's a, the kingdom has arrived. We see these other kingdoms, we've had them, but the real kingdom has arrived. It's in me and God wants to help you through it and establish his kingdom. So Jesus then teaches in the synagogues and proclaims his calling. Um, and, he, and we'll read Luke 4. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom. If you remember, we talked about freedom that first week. It's one of those overarching themes. For the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he, this is like a drop the mic mo moment. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. We see all this now. This, what we saw this past few weeks of the Old Testament, now he's, he's, it's being fulfilled in him. Well, now I can talk a little bit. Let me mention miracles next page. Um, miracle, I'm not going to mention every time he does a miracle of healing, for example. It goes, out, goes on throughout the Gospels, and that's very important. That is not just showing he has the power. It's showing restoration to creation, restoration to humans. 
It's a very important act. It's not just, oh, look what I can do, believe in me. It's I'm doing, showing you glimpses of the kingdom. Things are being healed, restored. Um, then we have in John 3, Nicodemus secretly meeting with Jesus. God so loved the world. Um, that's where that famous, of course, verse comes in. That you see at sporting events. Then Jesus talks with the Samaritan woman, John 4. And then Jesus heals at the pool and challenges the Jewish leaders. These are all in John. And here's one of those, if you step back and see how John laid this out, it's very important. We talked about the first week um, Bartholomew talks about. Too often things are in little bits and pieces and we don't get the big story. Look what Jesus is doing here, how John's laying this out. Jesus is starting to do his miracles. Then one of the secret Jewish leaders meets him one night. God says, you know, I'm Jewish, but who are you really, Jesus? And I need to sneak in here at night to talk to you about this. Jesus says, God so loved the world. John 4 then goes to, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. He's showing that. He's going outside Jewish circles. John is showing you. Then John 5 goes, Jesus is healing against the pool, and then he's going back and challenging the Jewish leaders again. This, these are all fitting together. And that's how, when you read the Gospels, they're laid out that way that they are, and Anson's very good about it. He doesn't just pick three verses and say, I'll just do these three verses. He's trying to pick a section that fits together. That's why some of his sections are really long, and some, you know, we've done a whole week or two on two verses before. And that's why, because they may be so packed in how they tie together these other. But this is a good example of that. We'll talk to another, about another one here in a minute. So John 5 goes on. So he's challenging the Jewish leaders now and said, Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. When we talked about life. It's one of those overall themes of, of Scripture. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So Bartholomew, the author of our book here, says, Against the Pharisees' deep-held misunderstanding of Israel's identity and vocation, Jesus holds up his missionary calling. His refusal to abide by their rules and see things their way incenses the religious leaders because his story of what Israel was always meant to be shows their story to be a lie. It's a really powerful statement and a great way to phrase it. They wanted to believe a totally different story. And Jesus comes come and say, no, you got it wrong. You missed it. And also this passage talks about if we're not studying the scriptures to understand God and Rather, just to study the scriptures, to understand scriptures, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. He's communicating to us both individually and as a church and as a universal church. We've got to keep all those things in mind. That's how God is communicating with us. It's not about the scriptures. It's about him and the scriptures are a way, a vehicle he has used to communicate that to us. And we are thankful for that. <clears throat> Jesus then gives the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about how he is the fulfillment of the law. Again, here's the symbolic, where, how, where are the Ten Commandments? How, where, where were they given? On a, on a mountain. And here's Jesus saying, let me tell you about the law on this mountain. Let me tell you. Again, he's fulfilling Israel. He's, he's, he's living out the story. So not as the only... He's the only one that can do it all. He's living out what they should have done. Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Um, the religious leaders of the day have mis misunderstood the Old Testament story. Then, interesting enough, you have the faithist centurion, again, going back to a Gentile, the cost of following Jesus, he calms the storm and sends the demons to the pigs. Probably not a, all those kind of 
fit together in a way. You have the faith of a centurion. He's saying this is what faith should be like. But if you're going to have faith and follow me, this is the cost of following me. Oh yeah, you think you'll do all that? Well, let's get on the stormy water and see how you do. They panic. He says, no, I got this. And in fact, I'm also dealing on spiritual, in spiritual realm too. These stories fit together. They're, they're, there's a pattern there. Don't separate them. Then, we just talked about the cost of following Jesus and all this. What does he do? He sends out the 12 shortly after on their mission, on their test run. So he, he, we learned about the 12 apostles. He says to love enemies, about judging others, the tree and its fruit, the wise and foolish builders. Um, again, it's a, that's a lot about following him. Then you have the parable of the sower, the weeds, the mustard seed, and yeast. Um, Anson talked about yeast um, a few weeks ago in, in the Exodus series, and about the pearl, the value. And this is all about the kingdom, all about the kingdom. So Bartholomew breaks it down very well. He says, the kingdom is like statements. Because the kingdom was not what the Jews had expected. So it is just this kind of confusion that Jesus addresses in the parables. His disciples struggle to understand how the promises of the prophets are being fulfilled in Jesus. Sometimes Jesus talks about the kingdom as if it is all present already. Other times he just says that it's coming in the future. The parable of the sower and weeds teaches that in the present, the kingdom comes by the sowing of the gospel. In the future, the sown seeds will grow up in mature plants and the weeds will be separated from the wheat. So that parable is very important to understand what's going on. All these parables are. He's trying to get... The kingdom is kind of beyond our comprehension. So he's trying to use, again, a genre. He's using a genre to tell the story. Say so it's like this. And it helps us understand. The Messiah does not come as a military conqueror, but as a humble farmer. Some people receive the word, and God's power brings forth the fruit of the kingdom. But others reject that message and seem to suffer no harm. How often do you see that? People who have rejected God's message, and it doesn't seem to faze them. But the final judgment of the kingdom is reserved for the future. Um, John the Baptist then dies. Then you had the feeding of the 5,000 and the calming of the Again, the feeding of the 5,000 and the calming of the storm, in that case, again, they go together. Those stories fit together. It's not a coincidence that you have one then the other. And both, if you think about in, in various ways, one is about belief. Another is about de Jesus dealing with creation and how he handles it. He multiplies food. He calms the storm. Um, There's a, there's a psalm that talks about this. And, and Psalm 107 says, um, after Mark 4, and um, one of the comments of the storms, he says, Psalm 107, He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were, hu sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to the desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to the children of man. Again, you hear, for the Jewish readers and the Jews of the time, they're hearing that Jesus had calmed the storm. This psalm is coming to their mind. They're thinking, you know, that's just like Psalm 107. He calms the storm. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And it was God who did it. It's this message, it's, this read, it's the reading backwards we've talked about. Um, so, he calms the storm. And then he, another, one of the I am's, I am the bread of life, yet many abandon him. So we have this discipleship, which is, you know, a bunch of them didn't like the message Jesus talked about. It was too hard for them to understand. A lot of disciples left. The closest disciples sit there, and, and Jesus says to him, you know, do you want to go too? And Peter says, where do we go? You have the words of eternal life. Um, powerful moment. And then in John 5, uh, 8, 58, very important I am, um, the Jewish leaders are challenging Jesus, and he says, um, 
the Jewish leaders are saying, uh, you're saying you're before Abraham? How can that be? You're, you're a young man. And Jesus says, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up the stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. He's using the, the same idea of Yahweh that we saw with Jesus in the burning bush. I am. He's saying that. That's why they're so mad. That's why they're picking up stones. They know what he's doing. So, whoa, that, that was reserved for God. When he's talking to Moses, he says, yeah, I got it. I know what I'm talking about. Um, then you have the thing about John 8, or excuse me, John 9 says, I was blind, but now I see that famous passage. Then you have another I am. I am the good shepherd. Then you have the death and raising of Lazarus. Um, you have another feeding of the 4,000. And then you have Peter's confession about Jesus and Jesus' um, death predicted. Um, Matthew 16, 16, um, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He's, he, Jesus asked, who do you think I am? In the Gospel of Mark, and somewhat in Matthew, but especially Mark, the shape of the book, this is the pinnacle part for Mark, in the Gospel of Mark. It, it kind of like is driving up to this point this is when he starts racing now towards Passion Week. This is like the key statement. It's the statement we all should ask ourselves. It is, as many have said, the most important question you could ever ask, anybody could ever ask. Who do you say I am that Jesus asked? Um, and Mark emphasizes that. Um, and you see it in Matthew and Luke also, Luke 9. Is this, this isn't contained. It's incredibly important moment. Incredibly important moment. Not coincidentally then, you have the transfiguration right after. That's where the, you have Elijah and Moses show up on the side of Jesus. Um, and John and James and Peter, Jesus' closest confidants, are come up to see. And Peter says, you know, should we build three tabernacles or three altars? Pretty cool. And God says, no, 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 this is about Jesus. This is about Jesus. Elijah and Moses are there kind of signifying prophets, law, all that of the Old Testament is being fulfilled in this guy. He is, he's what it's all about. Um, and then discipleship again. Right back to discipleship. Um, so you know, Jesus' confession, of course, Peter then, uh, Peter's confession, then of course Peter makes a bumble, on it, you know, and Jesus has to call him Satan. But then you have the transfiguration, then talk about discipleship again. So it's this, these, these stories are going together as Jesus, we're getting ready for them to be prepared as he's going to go into Passion Week. Um, Bartholomew says, Jesus speaks sharply to half-hearted followers. The way of discipleship is costly. It demands total commitment, complete devotion, and allegiance to Jesus and the kingdom of God. Um, if anyone's, has anybody read Cost of Discipleship by Bonhoeffer? Highly recommend it. Get about your marking pen. You're going to mark a lot of pages. It's going to make you uncomfortable because it is, gets to your heart and it talks exactly what Bartholomew is there. It's not about half-hearted following. The way discipleship is costly, it demands total commitment. If you know the story of Bonhoeffer, he was a theologian in Germany in the 30s. Um, Hitler rises to power. He is one of a group of church leaders that says, no, he's a great theologian, too. He's young. He's in his, he's in his 30s, I think, 20s or 30s. But <clears throat> Hitler rises up. People say, you've got to get out of here because he know, Hitler's people know you're against him. He goes to the United States. He starts to think about it, says, you know, I can't. I've got to go back. I've got to go back and make a stand. So he goes back to Germany, um, continues to be outspoken against the Nazis. He's in prison. He writes these letters and writes this book. In essence, he lives this out. Now, part of it is he's also some... A lot of indications are he was part of a of a attempt on to kill Hitler too. 
um, somewhat indirectly or directly, but that failed, that the attempt failed nonetheless. Just his overall work and everything, he's in prison. He is killed days before um, the Allies arrive to liberate. Um, so he understands the cost of discipleship. I highly recommend the book. Um, he's, he's a theologian people still study, um, still write about. There's still biographies being written about him. It's, it's a remarkable person. Um, nonetheless, Jesus is talking about that. This is, this is allegiance. And there's a, been a recent book in the last couple of years about faith. And non-believers often think faith is about lack of evidence. But scripture, and hopefully Christians, understand that's not the, what faith is really talking about. It's talking about trust. Well, a book came out recently It says it's even more than that. It's about allegiance. Jesus is talking about you have faith, have allegiance. And that's kind of what Bartholomew is talking about here a little bit in his, in his quote. There's, it's more than just trust. You know, I trust God will handle it. Believe God, there's no doubt about that. But I tr- also trust His character and His power and he, what He's doing. I may not understand, but I trust it. Well, there may be an element of allegiance too to that, and that's that's about that discipleship and that following. So um, then you have the parable of the Good Samaritan again, blowing the Jewish leader's mind. He's saying the hero of the story is a non-Jew. You know that didn't sit well. Then you have him go to Mary and Martha's home where. Martha's working. Mary wants to sit at Jesus' feet. Um, then you have the Lord's Prayer. Then you have Jesus expressing, or well, you have Jesus expressing concern and sorrow for Jerusalem. And he talks about um, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who you kill, who you kill the prophets and stone those who sent you. How often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Um, I thought I had some I had some passages on that. Um, yes, Deuteronomy 32. In a desert land he found this is in poetic form. <clears throat> in a desert land he found him in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carry them aloft. The Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. Um, Psalm 91 also says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you, you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. And he will call on me, and I will answer him, and I will be with him in trouble, and I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Where here's Jesus saying, oh, how long I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. This is, again, this is going to trigger in the Jewish mind these, these pictures of, oh. Especially if they look back, reading backwards, say, oh, this is, Jesus is fulfilling this. He, this is, he cares so much about this. Um, and then again, you have the cost of discipleship. Um, the parables of law, uh, lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Again, talk about kingdom and gathering people together, how much it cares. You have the rich man and Lazarus, different Lazarus. This is the one where the rich man warns people, please don't, you know, please don't do what I do. Believe what, what's being told um, so you can have eternal life. Um, then the coming of the kingdom. And then Jesus enters Jerusalem as a king. Here we go into Passion Week. Overturning the temple tables. Of course, again, in John, matter of fact, I mark it there. That happens in John too. But in the synoptics, it's later. He curses the fig tree. You have the parable of the two sons, um, you know, the, the prodigal son, and the parable of the tenants. Um, at the bottom of that page, we talked about Jesus enters Jerusalem as the king overturning the temple tables. He curses the fig tree, which we'll get to in a minute, and the parable of the two sons and the tenants. Again, these stories all fit together. Um, he's coming in. 
Um, as, as Bartholomew will say here on the next page, Jesus' action in the temple requires its full significance. Only when we are taught on the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, to understand it in relation to the prophetic words of Isaiah to restore Jerusalem and Jeremiah, judgments against the city and temple. Remember how important the temple was as we were, matter of fact, I mentioned earlier tonight, you know, some people were crying, you know, it just wasn't its full glory, but the temple was that important because it symbolized the center point of where God was to the Jews. Um, so here's Jesus coming in and really stirring things up. Um, but notice he comes in as king. He has to then kind of push back against the, the authorities. He curses the fig tree, which is an, regards, it's an Old Testament prophecy thing, where he's, it's a symbolic curse against Israel uh, for not believing. And then, then you have the parables of the two sons, which is a pushback on the Jewish leaders, you know, who were jealous of him welcoming sinners, and then um, the tenants. So those stories all go together. So then we go to um, John 2, he talks about Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Again, and it talks about, um, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. There's, it's a new era. Again, he's, he's not, he's fulfilling Israel. He's even going to become the temple, which of course the church later would become through the power of the Holy Spirit. So God becomes the temple and disperses its power to, its, to the people of the church. Um, then you have the parable of the wedding banquet, which is appropriate. Jesus, you know, he's there, the king's there, let's celebrate. And the greatest commandment, Lord said to him, um, of course, the golden rule, which partly we talked about is um, part of the Shema and then part of Leviticus. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then um, you have the the, the quote, Lord said to my Lord, which is from Psalm 110, which is quoted often, the most common Old Testament passage, I think, in, in the New Testament is Psalm 110. So I mentioned that there. So then Matthew 22, we're getting to this, this troubled time here, um, this week here, this big event. Uh, Jesus said, which is the greatest commandment of the law. Jesus replied, love the Lord God with all your God. Love your, excuse me, I can't talk anymore. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Um, again, it's all being, he, he's saying you've missed it all. You guys have totally missed this, and this is what it's really all about. Temple destruction is predicted. I'm sure that's set well. End of times and the day and hour unknown. Um, I'm sorry. You hear the people that predict when you know, the end of time is coming? Just don't. <laughs> Just don't go there. Um, Bartholomew says, judgment on this temple must take place so that a new temple, Jesus', Jesus resurrection life in the renewed people of God can become the light for the nation that God intends. Um, then you had the parables of the ten virgins, the bags of gold, the sheep and the goats, separating the sheep and goats. Then you had the plot against Jesus. Um, Jesus anointed by the woman. Judas getting upset. The Last Supper, the washing of feet. Here we are the night, the, probably that Thursday night. The promise of the Holy Spirit, um, which John really goes into a lot. I highly recommend that. Um, the vine and the branches, where Jesus says, um, I am the vine, you are the branches. You can do nothing without me. That, that abiding, that relationship part. Um, Peter, he says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Then you have the Garden of Gethsemane, um, where Jesus is, you know, dreading what's coming, but knows it needs to happen. His arrest, and of course, his trial. Um, the Last Supper is a celebration of the Passover. Again, that Old Testament reflection. Uh, part B, then we have the death of Jesus, um, which you have Pilate getting involved. The crucifixion, Pilate is kind of the go Roman governor that comes in. The crucifixion and the death and burial. Um, Tim Keller writes, when he died on the cross, the veil in the temple was ripped through, showing that the need for the entire sacrificial system with all its clean laws had been done away with. 
Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin, and now Jesus makes us clean. Bartholomew says the cross represents the climatic victory of the kingdom of God. God's rule, God's rule has been disrupted by human rebellion, which we talked about back in the fall, and all that came with it, demonic power, sickness, suffering, pain, and death, every kind of evil. The root of all opposition to God's rule was human rebellion, and that, and that could be destroyed only at the cross. Then God's self-giving love, mercy, faithfulness, grace, justice, and righteousness are shown, are shown for what they are in the event by which he accomplishes the salvation of his creation. Then you have the resurrection and ascension. Um, of course, the resurrection is talked about in various nuances by, by all of them. Um, you have the road to Emmaus, which this church is named after. Um, the Great Commission, um, which is Matthew 28, which I have actually at the bottom of that page, and it talks about um, when the 11 disciples were, went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and um, when, he saw him, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, a teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That presence, God with us, he's, even when he's going to be ascending, he's saying, I'm, I'm still with you. Um, the term, back up to near the top there, the term we translate resurrection was a vivid image in Jewish thought, implying the coming of the end of the age and the renewal of the cosmos in which God's people would participate by their own return to physical life. The idea of the resurrection of the body was therefore intricately woven together with the Jewish concept of the renewal of creation as a whole and the coming of the kingdom of God. Again, it was going to be this huge, massive event, many think. I'm kind of, not all scholars agree with this. But a lot, it was going to be this, resurrection was going to be all at once. This massive, N.T. Wright, Anybody's familiar? He's, he talks a lot about this. Has studied this diligently, and it's they were kind of they had no idea it was going to be a resurrection like how Jesus first did it. That's not what they were expecting in Jewish thought. So, um, but the early Bartholomew goes on to say the early church joyfully proclaims the resurrection of Jesus to be the ultimate good news, an event with cosmic consequences, the beginning of God's renewal of creation. It is Jesus' return from the dead that validates his claim to be God's anointed Messiah. What it seemed to be weakness is revealed to be the power of God, conquering human rebellion and satanic evil. Um, got the wrap up here. Um, Jesus has led the way for us to, into the age to come and marked for, out for us a path to the kingdom of God. We come to that resurrection life as we follow him, first in foretaste, on this side of the completed kingdom, and at last entering it fully in the new earth. The new day of resurrection for all creation dawns when Jesus rises from the dead. Too often we talk about the cross. Make sure you connect the resurrection to it. it, it, it it's a package deal, and even the ascension. Um, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, Luke 24 says, he said to them, this is on the, uh, on the road to Emmaus. He said to them, then he opened in their minds so, he could, so they could understand the scriptures. He said, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Um, so Jesus talks about he, he is fulfilling that, that, that this passage. Um, and finally... Um, as we already read about the Great Commission, and then Jesus ascends. That's that throne idea. He is going to sit at the right hand. He's going to take his throne now. It's almost the, the royal announcement. King Jesus has done all he can. He's, he's sitting on his throne. That's what the ascension's all about. And he's now a mediator on our behalf. He is taking those who have faith in him, and he's now our mediator there as the king in, on the throne. 
Um, and it talks about, as I mentioned, Jesus reigns. So that's where we leave off. He is risen. Um, the king has come. But you have this kind of awkward point. The disciples are kind of saying, okay, the kingdom started, but you left. The Spirit's coming. When is that kind of this, this in-between period that they're going to have to navigate? Navigate. Jesus has talked about to the ends of the earth. How do we deal with Gentiles on this? You know, we're a Jewish group, and now you're saying we've got to go out. Um, well, that's where Luke's going to pick up an axe, that, that tension, and they're going to have to work through it. And that's where our story's going to pick up um, as we go through the New Testament and what we see in Acts, what Paul's writing about in his letters, Peter in his letters, John in his letters, um, and some real-life application um, in Jude and it's, it's Hebrews will talk about the connection to the Old Testament they, they've got to work all this out as, as under the power of the Holy Spirit's going to enlighten them on all this how to work this out and it's an exciting time but also then we're going to see our, our place in the story because we talked about part of our place in the story is as we meditate on scripture as we read these passages to understand the story but also we have a role in this as we go into act five we're going to be part of act five the story's not over and we're going to be part of that we're going to talk about that next time so uh, let me close this a prayer and then i'll hand out the books and then gonna head out dear lord we just thank you for this time and this pinnacle part of your story um your life death and resurrection and ascension um god with us and uh, we, we know you because of that and we thank you for that and that you are on your throne and you have sent the Holy Spirit and you are a trinity that just is in control of it all and um, just ask for our faithfulness to trust you, to follow you um, at whatever cost. Please forgive us of our, our fear and our doubts at times. Um, strengthen us with courage as we go forth and we look forward to next week and seeing how you allowed that early church to work this all out as you, and as you inspired scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit and, and just showed how the Holy Spirit was working through it all. And we pray all this thing, all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.